And once again, good morning. I have uh, you all turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 5. If you're new with us, we welcome you to Calvary. And just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel uh, here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We've decided to stay in chapter 5 forever. Uh, we've uh, spent extra time in chapter 5 because actually a lot of commentators, and I'll believe it is the um, greatest chapter in the whole gospel, possibly in the Bible itself. So we've spent a little extra time. Now, starting in John 5, the, sh the Jewish leadership put Jesus on trial, not literally, but definitely in the court of public opinion. And at this point, the animosity towards the Lord really begins to ratchet up as he heals a man on the Sabbath who had been lame for 38 years. And that really set off the Jewish leadership. They believed Jesus Christ uh, was a lawbreaker because he broke the Sabbath, didn't break the Sabbath. He violated their stupid Sabbath rules. It was all man-made junk. He didn't violate anything God said. But they claimed he was a lawbreaker and uh, that he was a blasphemer because he called God his father, thus making himself equal with God, which in their minds said meant he was claiming to be God, which he was. And that was, of course, blasphemy. So, you know, now they're beginning to really want him, uh, you know, they want people to turn against him. And uh, so they want to uh, kind of put him in on this trial thing where they really now are uh, questioning him and, uh, and so on and so forth. So in verses 19 to, through 29, Jesus, I guess you'd say if we're going to talk about them putting him on trial, he testifies in his own defense by claiming or defending his claim to be equal with the Father based on five evidences or truths. And we've studied these in detail. I'll just read these to you. God is his Father, number one. He is doing the same miraculous works the Father is doing, number three. The Father has given him power over life and death, number four. The Father has given him authority to judge the world. And number five, the Father wants the Son to receive as much honor as himself. Now, if you're new with us, you may not see how those are a proof of Jesus' divinity. Go, go online and listen to the teaching if you'd like. But um, all of these, after all we studied already in John's Gospel, all of these become powerful and irrefutable facts that corroborate and substantiate Jesus' claims of divinity and equality with the Father. And while we're at it, guys, not only is proving Jesus' divinity the whole point of this section in John 5, it is the whole point of John writing his gospel in the first place. As we have noted several times, at the end of chapter 20, John said, look, I could have put a lot of other miracles in my gospel, okay? I mean, he did so many miracles, I don't think the books of the world could contain them all. But I've chosen these that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Messiah, and Son of the living God, divine. And that by believing, you might have eternal life in his name. Now, critics refute that Jesus was actually declaring his divinity in verses 19 to 29 by pointing to verse 30, which reads, Jesus speaking, I can do nothing of myself. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, 
but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, theological liberals and assorted critics of the Bible point to Jesus' words here as proof. I mean, out of his own mouth. Okay, out of his own mouth. Uh, proof that he didn't have the power uh, to do anything by himself and that he needed the Father's approval. And they contend it proves he couldn't be God because God can do anything he wants to do. doesn't need to get permission from anybody. Well, that betrays a lack of understanding with regard to the mission of Jesus Christ as God incarnate and Redeemer. Turn to Philippians 2. And we'll hit this a lot harder when we come to John 14. But right now, I'll just kind of, you know, just kind of mention it. Because critics bring up this very thing in verse 30, that Jesus never claimed to be God. He couldn't be God. I mean, he had to get permission to do stuff. I mean, God doesn't need permission to do anything, you know, that kind of thing. Well, let me just read to you out of Philippians 2, starting with verse 5 where Paul said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, listen, he humbled himself in obedience to God the Father, and died a criminal's death on the cross. So Paul is telling us that when Jesus became a man, he left the honor and glory that was his in heaven as God the Son. Understand that when Jesus became a man, he did not give up his divinity. He did not become a lesser God. Some people say, well, uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus left uh, you know, heaven, he, you know, he left his divinity behind. Of course, he didn't leave his divinity behind. He's God. God cannot ever cease to be God. What he left behind was the glory that was his as God. He humbled himself, was born in poverty in a stable, grew up, uh, you know, working with a family. Stepfather was a carpenter, very hard work. Uh, Jesus worked at work. Uh, you know, he, he grew up in poverty and so forth. Uh, and then eventually started his public ministry. And eventually after that, went to the cross and died for our sins. He did all of that uh, because we needed redemption. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, verse 7, that, he, uh, that uh, he was made a little lower than the angels when he became a man. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that angels don't get hungry. Angels don't get tired. When Jesus became a man, he got hungry. He got tired. He took on a human body. It had limitations, right? And, but he became a man to die for the sins of mankind. Look, the Bible is very clear. That Adam, the first man, blew it for all of us when he sinned. All of us who are born into this world are born in Adam. He was the first Adam, okay? The last Adam. The first Adam means man, okay? He was the first man. He blew it for all mankind when he sinned. Jesus was the last Adam, the Bible calls him. And he be a man blew it for the human race. A man had to redeem the human race. That's how it works. Okay, and God couldn't die for our sins because God is spirit. So God had to become a man. It took a kinsman redeemer, a goel, the Hebrew word is, to die for the sins of mankind. 
And that's why Jesus became one of us, to die for us. And John 14, 28, when Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. Well, he wasn't saying he was a greater God than me. He was saying that the Father is greater in authority than I am. I have voluntarily placed myself under my Father's authority for the mission he sent me to accomplish, which was the redemption of the human race. He is absolutely equal with the Father in essence and being. But in authority, the Father is greater than him. And Jesus did all this voluntarily, guys. He voluntarily put himself under the, under the Father's authority in every area of his life to accomplish his mission. Again, the mission of redemption. And as such, he never did anything on his own authority. He never did, made any decision, did anything without going to his Father and getting instructions. You can read Mark chapter 1, verse 35. It was his, uh, his habit every morning before the sun came up to spend time with his Father in prayer, no doubt getting his assignments for the day, getting his instructions for the day, where to go, who to speak to, and so on. He never made a move without the Father's direction. And that's the idea here. Author and commentator William McDonald said, and I quote, This verse has often been used by false teachers to support their claim that Jesus Christ was not God. They say that because he could not, they say that because he could not do anything of his own, of his own self, therefore he was just a man. But the verse proves the very opposite. Men can do things they want, whether they are in accordance with God's will or not. But because of who he was, the Lord Jesus could not so act. It was not a physical impossibility, but a moral impossibility. He had the physical power to do all things, but he could not do anything that was wrong, and it would have been wrong for him to have done anything that was not the will of God the Father for him. This statement sets the Lord Jesus apart from every other man who has ever lived. As the Lord Jesus listened to his Father and daily received instructions from him, so he thought, taught, and acted. The word judge does not here have the sense of declaring on legal matters, but rather of deciding what was proper for him to do and say. Because the Savior had no selfish, uh, no selfish motives, he could uh, decide matters fairly and impartially. His one ambition was to please his Father and to do his will. Nothing was allowed to stand in the way of this, end quote. Now, guys, I, I bring all this out because whether you realize it or not, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, this is the ultimate goal of the Christian life for all those who follow Jesus, to only do the things God, and I'm thinking of the Trinity now, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to only do the things God wants us to do. That's the goal of the Christian life. Will we ever totally attain that goal in this life? Probably not. Probably not. That's the goal, though. That's what you work for. To only do the things that please the Father, that, that are in accordance with his word. Remember what we read about the incarnation in John chapter 1, verse 14? Again, of Jesus' incarnation, the word, which is the title for Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? The word became flesh. Well, that was literally true in Christ. But that is the goal for all of us who are disciples of Christ, that we only do what God has said in his word, thus allowing the word to become flesh 
in our lives. Paul the Apostle said it. He said, look, because back then people, teachers, got letters of recommendation from people that they spoke in front of. These were orators and uh, people that, uh, that spoke for a living. And, and some people were saying to Paul, where are your, where are your letters of recommendation? You know, how come you don't come with letters of recommendation? Paul says, I don't need letters of recommendation. You're my letters. You're living epistles. Your lives bear testimony to the fact that you've received the gospel and that your life has been radically transformed. This is my letter of recommendation. Because I've given you God's word, you've received the gospel, received Christ, and your lives have changed radically. Their lives, the word had become flesh in their lives. That's the goal. Now look, after testifying in his own defense, Jesus <laughs> representing himself as defense attorney. In fact, that's a title of his out of the New Testament. John, 1 John 2, we have an advocate with the Father. When Satan condemns us because we blow it, we have an advocate with the Father, namely Jesus Christ. The word advocate in the Greek means attorney for the defense. So Jesus is our attorney for the defense, but right here he defends himself against these uh, accusations that he was a blasphemer and was a lawbreaker and so on. And um, after testifying in his own defense, he now calls not one, not two, not even three, but four witnesses to stand to the stand to give testimony that he is in fact the son of the living God, God incarnate. And we see them listed in verses 31 to 47. First of all, we see the testimony of John the Baptist. Secondly, the testimony of miraculous works. Thirdly, the testimony of the Father. And finally, the testimony of the Scriptures. We'll only do the first one this morning, the testimony of John the Baptist. Verse 31, Jesus said, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, guys, don't misunderstand what the Lord is saying here when he said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Okay, he's not saying, of course, that his testimony of himself, that he is God incarnate, was unreliable or patently false to the point where now other witnesses had to be brought forward who would give testimony that was reliable. Of course, he's not saying that. Rather, he was simply acknowledging that Jewish law dictated at least two or three witnesses were required before a valid judgment could be rendered legally in a Jewish court of law. This was something the Pharisees tried to use against him multiple times. They were the doctors of the law, okay? And uh, in another heated confrontation that we're going to read about in chapter 8, um, where it got pretty heated, okay? Um, they called him a bastard child. They didn't buy the virgin birth story, okay? Mary had an affair, okay, out of wedlock. That's where he came from. He called them children of the devil. So it got a little heated, okay? Um, we'll read about that in John 8. Uh, but uh, but they, they wanted to use this against him. He was, he was claiming things about himself, testifying uh, in his own behalf, and yet he didn't have, you know, so they quoted Deuteronomy 19.15, where God had established in the law, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing shall be established. Now, Jesus has just told them he's God. But he knows that according to Jewish law, his testimony alone, although true, is not enough. And so now the Lord Jesus calls on four witnesses. 
who will corroborate his testimony with regard to his claim of deity. And as we just said, the first one to take the stand, quote unquote, in his defense, the Lord's defense. Now remember, he was still refuting the accusations against him. Okay, that he was a blasphemer, a lawbreaker. Okay, so, you know, they put him on trial. And he claims in response, well, I'm God. Okay, well, first of all, if Jesus is God, he can't blaspheme himself. Okay? Secondly, as Lord of the Sabbath, if he wants to, uh, to, uh, to, to put the Sabbath on hold for a, a day or so, because he's got some important things to do, he can do that also, although he never violated the Sabbath. So again, he is, he is um, proving to these men that they are in error. And the first witness he calls in his defense to the stand is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He said in verse 32, there is another who bears witness of me. Okay, my testimony is not enough. I understand that. I know Jewish law. By the way, I was the one who gave you the law from Mount Sinai. But I'm okay. I, I know Jewish law. Okay. Uh, you know, in case you're wondering. But uh, uh, there's another who bears witness of me. And I know that the, the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, John the Apostle opened up his gospel. See, in the first 18 verses of his gospels, we have said, John presents Jesus as God. Okay? And that's wonderful. And, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's absolutely, you know, that, that's wonderful. Now, Jesus in John 5 uh, testifies himself he's God in human form. But John, the apostle, opened his gospel by talking about John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, the herald that God sent before the Messiah. He said in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, capital L, John came as a witness of the Christ, Jesus Christ, that all through him, all through John's, everybody who heard John's testimony and witness would be saved, might believe. You see, it was prophesied in the Old Testament, guys, that before Messiah the king would appear in Israel, that God would first of all send a messenger before him to herald his coming. We see that in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord Jesus himself is talking. Behold, I send my messenger. The word is herald. And he will prepare the way before me. Now, as we brought up and we studied John 1, before a king would visit an area of his kingdom, a herald was always dispatched. And the herald's job was to go forth and to tell people, look, the king is coming. And the idea was, look, clean up your lawns, Okay. Uh, you know, mow your grass, uh, paint your houses, fix that, that broken down. The king is coming. We want the king to have, you know, everything to be presentable uh, when the king comes, right? And so John the Baptist became the herald of Jesus Christ, the king. Although the message was not clean up your houses, it was clean up your hearts. Prepare them to receive the coming of the king to repentance, Right? Now, you have to understand, when John came on the scene, and we've talked about this, but when John started his public ministry, he was the first prophet in Israel for, in over 400 years. In over 400 years. There had been no prophet in it ever since Malachi, 
the last book of the Old Testament closed. It was over 400 years that before John the Baptist uh, came on the scene. And the Jewish people were heartbroken. They thought God had forsaken them. Because for 400 years, they never heard any man stand up and say, thus says the Lord. You know, thus says the Lord. They were heartbroken. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this guy in the wilderness crying out, make straight the way of the Lord. Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts to receive the Messiah. Well, this unleashed a wave of excitement you can't even believe. Messianic excitement reached such a fervor pitch that people were just, they were drawn out into the wilderness to hear this guy. They wanted to hear him preach. They wanted to be baptized by him. I mean, it was quite a scene. In fact, John drew so many people out into the wilderness to hear his message and all that it got the attention of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And they decided to send a delegation out to find out who this character was. You remember the story uh, in uh, John chapter 1, starting with verse 19. And so they sent a delegation of priests and Levites and Pharisees out to, to confront John. And they said to him, well, who are you? Okay, are you the Christ? Because some people actually say, this guy must be the Christ, the Messiah. Are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. Um, are you Elijah? No, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah. Oh, are you that prophet? That would be the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. No, I'm not the prophet. Well, who are you? You know, we, they sent us out to find out who you are. Who are you? Then he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am a voice. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So why do you baptize if you're not the Christ or Elijah or that prophet? He said, well, I baptize with water. That's true. There is another one coming soon. He's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandal straps. And Jesus is here reminding these leaders. I'm sure some of these guys he's talking to at this moment in John 5 were those who went out to talk to John. And he's reminding them of the testimony that John gave to them on that day. Verse 33, you have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, look, remember that John bore witness of me when he told you that he wasn't the Messiah, but was my herald who went before me to prepare the hearts of the people through repentance to receive me. So John's my witness. But then he quickly added in verse 34, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. Jesus made sure his accusers understood that he didn't need the testimony of any man to prove his identity. Okay? As creator God and righteous judge of all the earth, he would sit in judgment of them someday. Then they would know for sure who he was. Even though for the moment, he would go along with them sitting in judgment of him. Why did he allow them to sit in judgment of him? Why, why did he allow this whole thing? Out of love. Out of love for these men. That they might be saved by coming to believe he was telling them the truth about himself, that he was, in fact, the Messiah and Savior of the world. Guys, 
Jesus allows people to sit in judgment of him to give them the opportunity to hear the evidence that they might come to believe in him and be saved. The greatest example of this was the morning of the crucifixion. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate who sat in judgment of him? You remember this story out of Matthew 27, verse 11 through 26? The Jewish leadership had already decided Jesus was guilty. They didn't have the power to execute him. They had to get Pilate to do that. And so they made sure they were at court, Pilate's court, before it opened. Okay, I think it opened 5 or 6 in the morning, either one of those. And they were waiting because they wanted their case to be the first on his docket for the day. So here comes Pilate with his Starbucks in his hand, you know, and he doesn't know what's coming. Uh, he just sees these guys here, and he knows the Jewish leadership. They've been a problem ever since he'd become governor of the region, right? And so uh, they said, what's, go what, what's going on, you know? And, uh, uh, and they said, well, this man is guilty of some serious crimes. And they list, you know, he tells people not to pay taxes. Uh, I forgot what the other one was. The, the big one was that he claims to be a king. Now, that was, Rome was pretty lenient uh, on, uh, you know, what you wanted to believe. But they didn't tolerate insurrection. The fact that this guy's claiming to be a king, that's what Pilate zeroed in on, right? And so he takes Jesus aside and says, are you, are you a king? Well, yes, as, as you say, you know. But he sees that he's got no army. He's got no, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. You know, Pilate, I don't know who this guy is, but he's definitely not a threat to the kingdom. And so he goes out to the leaders and says, look, I don't find any fault in this guy. Look, we have a custom that, uh, you know, I have a custom that uh, on the major feast days, this is Passover time, uh, you can choose whatever uh, criminal in, in, in jail to be released. Now, I got Barabbas back there. He's a terrible guy. And, and I got Jesus here who claims to be your king. So, so who do you want? And they said, uh, we'll take Barabbas. What? Why do you want Barabbas? Je Je you know, and then in verse 22, he says, well, then what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? Of course, they said, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. The chief priests and scribes had gone throughout the crowd and encouraged people to vote for Barabbas. Okay? So they said, well, we'll take Barabbas. And um, what I, should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Why? What, is he, what evil has he done? Crucify him. Crucify him. And when Pilate realized that it was becoming a, a mob scene, he calls for a basin of water, washes his hands in front of the people, and says, look, I am innocent of the blood of this good man. He knew why they were railroading Jesus, out of envy. I'm innocent of the blood of this good man. I washed my hands of it. You see to it, okay? You see to it. And they said, his blood be on us and on our children. The nation of Israel, in many ways, is still paying for that. 70 AD, yes, when the city was destroyed, Jerusalem, temple wiped out. And the Jews were scattered. But even to this day, um, they are a hated people and uh, really have never done anything wrong. They've rejected their Messiah, but how, how many other folks have done that? Okay? But God is a place for Israel. Okay? He's not done with Israel. And uh, he's going to save uh, many, many Jews. That time is coming. But um, 
So Pilate, under pressure, released Barabbas and had Christ scourged and then crucified. A couple things we need to know or look, understand. First, when asked to choose between the righteous and the lawless, the fickle crowd will always choose lawlessness over righteousness. And that's because of their fallen nature. That's because of their fallen nature. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to rehabilitate criminals. But the recidivism rate is incredible, 80% in many cases. So they just get out and get right back in. All the programs, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have programs to rehabilitate criminals, and some of them do get rehabilitated. But you're, you're not affecting the problem. The core problem is the fallen heart. What they need is Jesus, because then they get a new heart. Okay? But man, if left to himself, will always choose unrighteousness over righteousness. We see it here, the ultimate example of that. Jesus Christ, the most righteous man that ever lived, who did nothing but give and give and help and heal and, and deliver and all kinds of feed and all kinds of wonderful things. When it was all said and done, fallen man hung him on a cross and crucified him. But the second thing, and the one I really want to zero in on, second thing we need to see is how Pilate let the crowd make the decision for him as to what he was going to do with Jesus. Remember again, verse 22, what then shall I do? What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And guys, in regard, I believe the Holy Spirit is holding up Pilate as an example of how he, he really kind of sits in the place of all mankind, in a sense. I mean, he becomes an example of the place every human being finds him or herself in when presented with the gospel. What am I going to do with Jesus, who is called Christ? That's a personal decision that every person has to answer, a question they have to answer for themselves. A decision each person has to make for themselves. What are they going to do with Jesus? I mean, you know... Pesky Jesus. I mean, you know, I mean, I can't ignore him, especially if you're an atheist. Uh, we're coming up Christmas time. Okay. Atheists hate Christmas time because it's all they hear about is Jesus. Okay. Uh, resurrection Sunday time. It's all they hear about is Jesus, the resurrection, you know. But we live in a, a country that was birthed um, with the gospel, you know. And uh, a lot of people have heard the gospel, and they just don't know what to do about Jesus. Some people let the crowd decide for them. Peer pressure is a real thing, isn't it? So a lot of young people who want to fit in, want to have be a part of the crowd, and so the crowd is becoming increasingly more and more anti-Christian, anti-Christ. Fewer and fewer young people are going to church or have been taken to church by their parents. And so to have a Bible thumper in the group, you know, somebody who calls, you know, most kids don't want to have a person like that in their group. So under peer pressure, a lot of young people reject Christ, even though they might believe in their hearts he's really who he claimed to be. But they reject him because they don't want to go on record as saying, look, I, I believe in him. I've given my heart to him. They let the crowd decide what to do with Jesus, and that is the worst thing you could ever do. It was the worst thing Pilate could have done. Let the crowd make a decision for you. Too much is at stake, and so on. Now, Pilate, 
And again, I believe the Holy Spirit is holding him up as an example to the rest of us. But Pilate, like so many others who are confronted with Christ and what to do with Jesus, Pilate thought he was sitting in judgment of Jesus that day. When in reality, guys, he was actually, actually sitting in judgment of himself. He didn't realize that. The judgment he rendered concerning Jesus wasn't going to affect Jesus. Same with everybody else. I mean, it's like, it doesn't, you know, people think, well, you know, I, I, I reject Jesus. I don't, I don't believe in him at all. Well, that's fine. It doesn't change who he is. He's still Lord, whether you believe in him or not. Your decision doesn't, has nothing to do with him. As far as how it affects it, it affects you. It's going to determine where you're going to spend eternity. So in reality, Pilate wasn't sitting in judgment of Christ. He was sitting in judgment of himself when he decided what to do with Jesus Christ. Same thing for all of us. That decision is the only decision we will ever face that has eternal consequences attached to it. What am I going to do about Jesus? He is called the Christ. Is he the Messiah? He said he was the Son of God. Is he the Son of God? He said there was only life in his name. Is there only everlasting life in his name? He said nobody comes to the Father except through me. So is that true or are there many roads that lead to God? No. You have to decide, you know, what to do about Jesus. Now, Jesus allows people. Don't miss this. Jesus allows people to sit in judgment of him now. Again, what am I going to do with Jesus? Believe in him or not? He allows people to sit in judgment of him now, but only, only for so long before he will have to judge them someday. Them someday. Again, John 5, 22 and 3, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Someday, right now, as we have pointed out, right now, Jesus wants to, if you're not a Christian, he wants to be your loving Savior. If you reject him and die, someday you will have to be your righteous judge. Those are the only two choices. Either receive him now, he'll become your loving Savior who will save you from your sins and from hell. Reject him and do your own thing, which you can do. You have a free will. And someday you will stand before him and he will become your righteous judge. Now, getting back to the witness of John, as we kind of wind this down. John 5.35, Jesus said of John the Baptist, He was the burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Again, guys, when John finally came on the scene, after the people of God had had no prophet to light their way for 400 years, and when I say light their way, uh, I'm saying that there was no prophet uh, preaching the word of the Lord. Remember Psalm 119, 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. That's how the Jews looked at the word of God. And for 400 years, there were no prophets in Israel declaring the word of the Lord. There was no lamp burning. There was nobody lighting the way of the nation uh, to stay on the right track with God. And then out of nowhere comes this weird character, dressed in a modified Tarzan outfit, <laughs> eating locusts and wild honey, screaming in the wilderness, get your hearts right, 
the Messiah is coming. Wow. Wow. Oh, the people rejoiced in John's ministry. They were ecstatic. Finally a prophet. Someone who was, who was a lamp burning. They were joyful to receive John's ministry. But only for a while. Only for a while. For a while he was a celebrity, you know? Uh, everyone wanted to be around John, you know? Everyone wanted to get a selfie with John, you know? That's how it was. Until John began to hit the subject of repentance hard in his preaching. Then not so much. You know, people will tolerate a preacher if they tell them what they want to hear. They won't tolerate a preacher who tells them they need to repent and change the way they're living. Of course, tax collectors, prostitutes, other sinners responded to John's message and eventually uh, came and followed Jesus when Jesus took over the ministry of John. John said, look, I, I'm only here for a short while. Uh, here's the Messiah. Jesus has finally come on the scene. Uh, I must decrease. He must increase. I must fade into the background. And now he's to take center stage. So my ministry is now his ministry. And many sinners followed John and then later Jesus. But the Jewish leadership, for the most part, wanted nothing to do with John's message of repentance. Because primarily they believed they were already right with God already right with God, and therefore had no need of repentance. Jesus confronted their hypocrisy, Jewish leadership. He confronted their hypocrisy of giving God lip service without, without actually obeying him in what he had said. He confronted this in a parable. Turn to Matthew 21. Remember now, the religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and so, and so on. Always giving God lip service. How much they love God. How much they honor God. How much they live for God. So on and so on. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus said, look, if your hearts were really right, you wouldn't just tell me you love me and tell me you want to serve me. You would actually go out and do it. You're serving yourselves. Yeah, serving me. But... He said in verse 28, but what do you think about this? A man with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Which of the two obeyed the, his father? They replied the first. Then Jesus explained his meaning. I tell you the truth, corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him. While tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. It's a lot of people that go to church sometimes every week. They hear, they hear the word of God taught, they nod, nod their head. I know, I've seen them. And I know they're not saved. They come to church, they hear the word of God, and they nod. Oh, yes, sir, God. This is the right way. Then they go out and don't do anything with it. They don't, they don't live it at all, okay? And, and Jesus is saying to folks like that, look, you can give God lip service all you want, but your life testifies to what's really going on in your heart. 
Didn't Paul say that in Titus 1, verse 16? Many profess to know God, but in works, they deny him through their lifestyle. They're not living for him at all. It's not that they're trying to live for God and still blowing it. We all do that. There's folks who hear God's word, nod, and, you know, and, and, and go out and don't really plan on doing, putting any of it into practice. James says, look, don't be just hearers of the word, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word. I like what Warren Worsby said along these lines. He said, John was a burning and shining lamp, and the Jewish people were excited about his ministry. However, their enthusiasm cooled, and nobody lifted a finger to try to deliver John when he was arrested by Herod. Whenever God raises up a spiritual leader who commands attention, there is always the danger of attracting people who want to bask in his popularity but not submit to his authority. A mixed multitude followed Moses and Israel out of Egypt. Uh, people who were impressed with the miracles but not yielded to the Lord. The prophets and apostles as well had great leaders uh, in church history and uh, all had to put up with shallow people who followed the crowd but refused to obey the truth. We have them in churches today, end quote. Guys, when Jesus said that John was a burning and shining lamp, that speaks of John's life being a witness, a life that was burning brightly for God. Remember what Jesus said? He said, look, you, talking to all his disciples, you're the light of the world. God has put his light in you, okay, his truth. Don't hide it under a bushel or under a bed. People don't light a lamp and put it under a bed or a bushel. They put it on someplace high where it can give light to the whole house. God wants us to let our light shine. He doesn't want us to be... This is a big bushel right here, this room, okay? Don't hide your light under a bushel. This is a big bushel. If this is the only place our light shines around other Christians, it really isn't worth much. God wants you to go out there where the darkness is and to be a light. Oh, yeah, you'll get persecuted. Some people will call you a religious nut. Fine. But Jesus said, in my mind, you're a faithful servant. And if all men speak well of you out in the world, you're doing something wrong. Because so they spoke with the false prophets who were before you. If they try to persecute you and treat you badly, rejoice. Because great is your reward in heaven. You belong to me. Look, John didn't, John didn't, hide his faith. He lived it openly and publicly. Look, say what you will about John. He was a colorful character, but everybody knew where John stood. Everyone knew where he stood. And guys, no one can live an authentic and effective life for God who doesn't let their light shine. In other words, who isn't living out their faith with genuine holiness and faithfulness to the Lord. Guys, in that regard, John the Baptist and Jesus himself were both hellfire and damnation preachers. We talked about that. Jesus talked about hell more than anybody because he didn't want people to go there. The whole point of preaching the gospel is to tell people that God wants to save them. Now, that used to be pretty obvious from what? Today, it's not so clear, depending on what church you attend. There are some pastors who teach that God wants to save you. That's why Jesus came, to save you from poverty or from depression, or low self-esteem. You can't believe what's out there. 
And the Bible says, no, he came to save us from eternal judgment in hell. That's why he came. That's what John preached. Get your hearts right. Messiah is coming. Receive Messiah when he comes. Don't keep living the way you're living. Jesus said the same thing. This kind of, you can preach hellfire and damnation in, in a loving way, okay? I, I, I like to think I do that. Okay, I'm not some wild, you know, and, 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 and you know, well, <laughs> we're out of time, all right? So I'm, I'm just, but you know, there was a time in our nation's history where preachers would preach hellfire. They would preach it constantly. It was the hallmark of their ministry because they didn't want folks going to hell. Read Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Try to put that in the marquee in front of the church and see how many people flood. Oh, look, it's sinners in the hands of an angry God. I want to hear that message. No, they were only put a sign that says garage sale. You'll pack the place. <laughs> That's where people are coming from today. I mean, can you imagine in this day of political correctness, okay, and tolerance and so on, where preachers are trying to keep things positive, upbeat, and non-confrontational to preach a message like sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is where John was coming from. This is where Jesus was coming from. They wanted to preach about the reality of hell so that people would run to God for refuge, run to Jesus. Guys, may God give us boldness. May God give us the commitment, the passion of John the Baptist. He was the herald of Jesus' first coming. Guess what? We are the heralds of his second coming realize that? And may God give us the grace to be a voice crying in the wilderness. You ever wonder why John was out in the wilderness crying? Why didn't he come into the city? Because he didn't want to be entangled with the cares of this life. He wanted to remain separate. John was a celebrity for a long time. First prophet in 400 years, as I said. He could have had the wealthiest people that wanted to sponsor him. They could have moved him into the nicest house in town. They could have bought him the finest food, the best clothes that money could buy, all to be associated with John. Everyone wants to hitch their wagon to a star, right? And, and John could have very easily become a very wealthy man. But he knew that's exactly what he didn't want, to have the cares of this life uh, you know, tangle him up and take him out of the work of God. So he stayed separate from the world. And that's why he was a voice in the wilderness crying out, but we are also in the wilderness. It's a very dark wilderness, spiritually speaking. May God give us the grace to be a lamp burning, right? To be a people that God has sent into this world to share his message, the gospel, with this lost and dying world. Like John was faithful, may God give us the grace to be faithful. Because these are dark days, guys. And God wants us to be a light. To do that, we have to be free from entanglements. And we have to stay focused, as John did. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your word. We thank you for men like John who show the rest of us what commitment really looks like. Lord, give us grace to be a light, to be a lamp burning, a life on fire for you. And Lord, we pray that you give us boldness, courage, but most of all, such a love for lost sinners that it doesn't matter how people treat us. All we want to see is people saved. 
And so we will go anywhere. We will talk to any person. Because thinking of them going to hell scares us more than the ridicule we receive for being faithful to you. So, Lord, give us grace. Empower us. Pour your spirit out upon us again in these last days. And make us bold witnesses for you, like John was. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.